All right. Good morning. We are back in Acts chapter 2 today, starting chapter 2. And be ready to spend some time in the Old Testament with us this morning. So we're coming to the day everything changed. This is the day that this titanic shift begins in the way that God is dealing with the world. God's redemptive plan moves dramatically into a, a new mode, a new way, what the Bible calls a new economy. That's sort of a biblical term that describes household operations. Well, the world is God's household and um, his kingdom is moving forward. So as Jesus explained in Luke chapter 5 to the Pharisees about why his ministry was so different in tone from um, anything previous, including John the Baptist, he said, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will spill out. And the skins will be ruined, but the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And what he was saying was that now that Messiah has come, nothing is going to be the same. So this new day in Acts chapter 2 is recognized by most people as the birth of the church, God's wonderful organism for reaching the lost and sinful world that we all live in and nurturing the followers of Christ in that world. So this is the day anticipated by John the Baptist that Christ would baptize men with the Holy Spirit. So this is the moment foretold by Jesus as well, uh, the coming of the Comforter, or as he said it at the end of Luke, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Power from on high. That's what every evangelist and every preacher of the gospel, every Christian witness longs for, a genuine work of God. You know, you can't whip up a genuine work of God on a human level. You can make things happen. You can get people to do all kinds of things by manipulating them, but only the Holy Spirit can ignite a true work of God. So the disciples have been waiting in prayer, anticipating the coming of what the Father promised. They were not calling down the Spirit. There's no suggestion like that here. The Spirit comes in God's time, always. And in God's time, on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, the Spirit came with power. And it's fitting and right that the single greatest moment in this transition from the old economy to the new economy after the death and resurrection of Jesus should come with miracles, special manifestations of God that everybody there would experience personally. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1, I'm going to read from there. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise, like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. That's pretty dramatic. So uh, let's just start with verse one here. Uh, why the day of Pentecost? Why did this happen on Pentecost? Well, likely because after the Passover, Pentecost was the first next required feast in the life of Israel. All Israel was to be gathered for that. There were, there were basically three feasts every year that Jewish men were required to attend in Jerusalem at the great temple. And they're all outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 16 in some detail, but there was Passover and then what's called the Feast of Weeks, which in the New Testament era was called Pentecost. That's a Greek word. And then the Feast of Booths. So those were the three required feasts. And after the Jews were dispersed in so many lands across the Roman Empire and in other places, uh, it would be impossible 
to attend all of these feasts. By the time you traveled to one and got home, it'd be time to go to the feast again, you know, so you'd be on the road all the time. So people that live far away couldn't do that. So the, eventually they made a rule where if you were within a certain radius of Jerusalem, you were required to come. But if you were outside of that, they would just encourage you to come when you could. And people did come. I mean, uh, people would make pilgrimages from very far away to go to at least one of the feasts uh, every couple years or something like that. It would be a, a big deal. In fact, Herod's temple, the, the first century temple that Jesus preached in, was so huge. I mean, it was an incredible place. And it was built with massive courts for the reason of accommodating all of these people that would come, many travelers who would come to worship there. So it not only uh, pleased the people that Herod would invest so much and um, put so much work into the, their own temple in their own country, and he, that obviously made them happy, but there was a great source of economic activity for his realm through this, kind of like the Sturgis Bible um, biker rally there in um, South Dakota, sort of like that. Well, nothing like that actually, except economically it was like that. All these people are coming in from all over the world and, uh, and meeting there. So many thousands of people, many more thousands than would typically be there in Jerusalem. So the pilgrimage feast drew devout Jews from all over. And many of them are listed in verses 9 through 11. We'll get there in a sec. So if you look at the list, you'll find attendees in Jerusalem come from many corners of the Roman Empire and, and well beyond it. Rome, Rome's power never really got further east than Syria, but there were Jews in Jerusalem on this day from the list here, from verses 9 through 11, from Arabia and Parthia, the, the Parthian Empire, which was beyond the borders of Rome. So there were still Jews living in the Eastern world, uh, Babylon and in those environs that never returned home. And they, they stayed there and they flourished there and they, they never came back, but they did return to worship after the temple was built and they had a place to come to. So we also see people from the island nations like Crete and Roman provinces in Africa. So these were Jews or Converts to Judaism, uh, quite a big part of the, their world was represented on the day of Pentecost. And they spoke many local languages from those places, from Africa, from the, the Eastern world, from the Turkey, uh, down through all the way to Italy and Rome, all of that, of course. So there were a lot of languages spoken, native languages spoken. And God had ordained that on this day, they would hear the gospel message about Jesus and the forgiveness of God. So as we look at verse two, we see that the spirit of God came with two manifestations that touched the senses. First the ears and then the eyes. So verse two again, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Kind of interesting. In, in Greek, the word for wind is the same word as spirit, pneuma, it's also the same word as breath, where we get, uh, we get words like pneumatic, you know, air-powered, or pneumonia, breathing sickness, you know, a difficulty breathing. So uh, Jesus used sort of a wordplay uh, on that in John chapter three, in his famous discussion with Nicodemus about the new birth. Do you remember that conversation? Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he is old? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit... He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. 
that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. That use of the imagery of wind uh, represents the sovereign movement of the spirit. The, the wind or the spirit blows where it wishes. And you, you can only tell it's been present by the effects of it. You either hear the wind or you see its effects in the rustling of branches or leaves on the ground or something like that. So you hear it or you see it disturb things around you, change things. So the Spirit of God visits and awakens hearts to the truth and you begin to see the effect of that in the lives of people. His presence is seen in how he influences men. So that's the power the apostles were waiting for, the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit emboldens and empowers them as they speak, but he also moves in the hearts of those who hear. And that was really Jesus' point in John chapter three. So there's an interesting Old Testament passage as well. It's quite famous. It's a prophetic vision, and it's called the Valley of the Dry Bones vision. And you find it in Ezekiel chapter 37. So you might want to turn there as well. It has a really wonderful message for national Israel, which was in captivity at the time. So Ezekiel 37, one, it says, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. Okay, this is a prophetic vision that Ezekiel has. So the prophet's taken by the spirit to this place of bones. He caused me, verse two, to pass among them round about and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley and lo, they were very dry. He said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you and make flesh grow back on you and cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. So Hebrew is just like Greek regarding this, this word. There's, there's a Hebrew word, ruach, which is the same word for spirit and for wind and for breath. And it, they're all used in that way in this passage in Ezekiel 37. So we see the word translated as spirit and breath and it's also used of the wind. So verse seven, he says, so I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied, there was a noise and behold, a rattling and the bones came together bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, sinews were on them, and flesh grew, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Again, that word ruach, breath. So the bones join themselves back together, and he sees the muscle and the flesh starting to cover them, but there's no breath, no spirit, no life, no spirit to animate these restored, physically restored bodies, but they're still lifeless. So there has to be the breath of life for them to live. Then verse nine, it says, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, and they come to life. It's a very powerful image. 
One of my favorite films about Jesus takes a few liberties at the tomb of Lazarus and they actually have Jesus quote this passage there. He says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon this man. And then he calls Lazarus forth. Uh, they're just putting Old Testament scriptures in Jesus' mouth there. But uh, it's an amazing passage. So here the prophet is to call for the breath. And notice again the close tie to the word wind. Um, come from the four winds. Wind is the same word, ruach. Come from the four winds, O breath, and that's the same word. So I prophesied as he commanded me, verse 10, and the breath came into them and they came to life and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So wow, what, what does all this mean? What, what does the vision actually represent? Verse 11, he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope has perished. We are completely cut off. This was the cry of Israel in captivity. We're all used up. We're all dried up. We have no hope. So verse 12, therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people. So it's actually a vision of national restoration. God will bring them out of captivity, return them to the promised land. It seemed impossible to them. They felt like they were finished. They had no hope. But he promises that he's going to do it no matter how bad it looks, how dry it looks, how gone they are. And that's not all. There's something more wonderful that God by his love and grace, his love for them, that he's going to do. And notice again the play on the word ruach, often translated here as breath or wind, except when it refers to the spirit of God. It's the same word for spirit. So look at verse 14. I will put my spirit, my ruach, within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it, declares the Lord. So that is more than just returning to the land, we're talking about a change of heart that God brings upon them. And right here in Ezekiel 37, I will put my spirit within you, there's an echo of the chapter right before it, Ezekiel chapter 36, a description of the new covenant. So step back one chapter, turn back one chapter in, uh, to Ezekiel chapter 36, and Ezekiel 36 contains a great promise to match the promise of the new covenant that is more famously in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'm not gonna go there today. But look at Ezekiel 36, verse 16. It says, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, when the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their way before me was like the uncleanness of a woman in her impurity. Therefore, I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land because they had defiled it with their idols. And they also scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands. According to their ways and their deeds, I judged them. When they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said of them, these are the people of the Lord, yet they've come out of his land. So they earned their captivity because they were so sinful 
But because they were known as the people of the Lord, the Lord's gonna act. He can't just let that be. So verse 21, but I had concern, he says, for my name, my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where, where they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So they defiled God's name, not only among themselves, but to all the surrounding peoples. And God is gonna vindicate his holy name, not only to them, but to all peoples. He says, verse 24, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put, my, put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, soft heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers so you will be my people and I will be your God. Now that last phrasing there, you will be my people and I will be your God. That is the covenant language that goes all the way back to Abraham's time and is followed all the way through the Old Testament up until this point. Um, he will, he's, God's spirit's going to be in them, not merely dictating to them, but in them and causing an internal transformation. So that's a complete promise. It's not just national restoration in the sense of them being back in the land, but them being rightly related to God in the promised covenant so he's going to cause them to love his commandments and love obeying his commandments they'll be fully restored to God and again that oft-repeated covenant language comes in you will be my people and I will be your God that's salvation language through and through they'll be saved by God sending his spirit into them okay why are we rooting around in the old testament so much I wanted to study acts today well, we're not rooting around. This is actually purposeful. We're looking at promises that are about to be fulfilled in a germinal form, a beginning form. A big step is about to take place in the book of Acts. And that's the new covenant promise being offered to Israel and coming true. The spirit in you is about to happen. So think about it. Israel killed the Messiah. They did the most loathsome thing, the most heinous crime ever. They murdered the son of God sent in love to redeem them and they killed him. So Peter, filled with the spirit, is about to confront them directly on that, that they had murdered the son of God. And he's gonna offer them God's forgiveness and the presence of the spirit in their lives. So it will be that generation's choice to refuse or to accept. But the day has come on Pentecost. Jesus said something rather amazing when he was arrested in Luke's gospel. Luke makes a point of who he said it to. It, in Luke chapter 22, verse 52, when Jesus was being arrested, 
He said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the powers of darkness are yours. So he's telling the leadership of Israel that they're operating out of the powers of darkness. It's a purely satanic thing that they're doing there. They're serving the powers of darkness. But now, on Pentecost, they and the people are going to be given another opportunity. Uh, a chance to embrace the new covenant promised by Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So Jesus had to die. That was foreordained before the foundations of the world. God used their hate and their jealousy and their sin, the leaders of Israel, to make Jesus the Passover lamb that would purchase the salvation of all who come to him by faith, to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So his death was the satisfaction for sin. And in his death is our salvation. If we accept it, accept him. Israel's sins can be washed away by him. Okay, so back to Acts chapter two now. All of that actually entered my head when, when I was reading Acts chapter two, verse two. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So somewhere 20 minutes ago or so, I mentioned that there were these two manifestations. One was the sound of the wind, this powerful sound. One was audible and the other one was visual. The other part was the, the appearance, the visual appearance of these tongues as of fire, it says. Verse three, there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. I think that image of the tongues of fire is uh, one of the most enduring symbols in Christianity. There's a lot of artwork de devoted to that. Fire is a very frequent Old Testament symbol of God's presence. You can think of the burning bush. You can think of uh, Mount Sinai or the great fire on top of Mount Sinai. You can think of um, the tabernacle and the, at night, you know, there was a pillar of fire that rose up from over where the mercy seat was. So um, the tongues represent the presence of God, the spirit coming. And the tongue spread across the room, in the upper room where all the disciples, there's like 120 people there, and lands on them. And right away, Jesus' disciples start speaking in foreign languages. Verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the spirit was giving them utterance. So notice this capacity for speaking other languages was dependent on the Holy Spirit. He gave them utterance. The Holy Spirit is totally in charge of everything that's going on here, this whole scene. And he has a great purpose for what's happening. So that, that sound, uh, a, a loud, roaring, violent wind, it wasn't just the disciples who heard it. That wasn't confined to that room. That sound was heard outside. It was heard down the street and maybe farther beyond that. It, it drew the crowd so I think we kind of picture the disciples having this experience and then running out and speaking in these languages. But uh, Luke, he doesn't give a whole lot of details about how this spilled out into the street and became a big event, but it's really clear that the sound of the Spirit coming was heard and brought people from outside to them, to the disciples.